For those of you who don't know me, I'm Charlotte Stalin, and I head up the uh, financial institutions sector at Simmons and Simmons. And I'm joined as my co-host for the next two days by Rob Turner, who leads the asset management and investment fund sector. This year, like previous year, we have a fantastic agenda. It's packed with amazing topics and speakers. As you will see, uh, the theme this year is making the future present, or really the future present. And as you've seen over the last few years, the financial services industry, like no other, has seen a huge amount of change and disruption, in part as a result of the pandemic, in part as a result of technology, and of course, the increasing changes in the regulatory landscape globally. So here to kick us off for this fabulous panel, um, who will really look at the power of disruption, in particular in relation to crypto and digital disruption, we have Andy Hotwell, who is our resident head of client insights at the firm, who will share a number of macroeconomic insights before we hear from our keynote speaker, Henri Arslany, who is the PwC Global Crypto Leader. Henri is also an author and is a, a senior advisor to many of the world's leading crypto exchanges, investors, regulators, you name it. Um, and so before we kick off, some of you may remember that at last year's event, I showed you a large photo of a sculpture called Large Door. It's huge, land of the giant size, and it's a door frame with the door at exactly 45 degrees, half open, half shut, and I'm standing under it, neither in nor out. The sculpture is a huge symbolic pun. In French, Large door means golden age, the romantic and mythical concept of a period of perfection. In English, read phonetically, it reads large door. And that's what the sculpture is, a socking great bronze door. But in art, doors are often used to symbolize the intersection between one reality and another. And much of what we were discussing last year and much of what we're discussing this year is about a moment of intersection. It seems a suspended moment of intersection with uncertainty as to what is going to be on the other side. What will the future hold? Was the large door shutting on what in the future we'd look back on a past golden age? Or was the large door opening to a large door where digitalization, ESG, responsible business, themes we'll be discussing today would help us to rebalance and move towards a new golden age. We are now a year on, and this time last year, I certainly expected to have a clear idea of what waited us on the other side. Andy, how much clearer is the future? Are we any the wiser, or are we still half in, half out? <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Uh, what a great introduction. And yes, I do remember um, the golden door and you standing halfway through it. And I suppose that if I look back over the remarkable year that we've all been through um, with COVID um, and the changes that that has brought about, um, that I think that we're kind of slightly over the threshold. The landscape of what we now talk about um, as the new normal is becoming just a little bit clearer. And as you and Charlotte have suggested, dominated that new normal by uh, themes such as disruption, crypto, 
and of course uh, ESG. Um, the markets themselves um, have also been through something of a transition. Uh, they've had a blistering recovery, a real sprint, but now comes the marathon. Economic growth rates are expected to slow down pretty much everywhere as we go through into 2022, and that's to be expected um, coming out of any recession. Um, but this time, that, that slowdown in growth rate is accompanied by spikes in inflation and talk of early, some say premature, interest rate increases. So in background, COVID itself hasn't gone away. Um, rates are coming down, thankfully, in most major economies around the world, but worryingly still on the rise in some parts of Europe and here in the UK as well. So I suspect with that background, the next few weeks and likely months are going to be at least volatile. Um, but further out, and the theme um, of today's session um, is the disruptive effects that we're talking about that going to characterize the new normal. I don't think that we're going to go back through your golden door to business as usual uh, in terms of what happens uh, next. Um, as Charlotte has said, I'm the client insights lead here um, at Simmons & Simmons, and I'm not a lawyer. Uh, instead, I've spent several decades in financial markets managing or advising global portfolios and companies using techniques now called horizon scanning uh, and scenario analysis and looking at what's coming over the horizon that could hit the value of my company today. And Charlotte, this is my fourth global outlook um, co-presenting with you since I joined Simmons & Simmons. And looking back over those past occasions, one thing is abundantly clear. As an old Greek guy called Heraclitus said two and a half thousand years ago, the only constant in life is change. And the changes that there have been in these last four years already have been dramatic from Brexit to covid with LIBOR and other structural changes in between. Looking ahead as we come hopefully to the end of the terrifying onslaught from COVID and the world begins its cautious return to the workplace, the so-called new normal ahead of us seems to be shaped by yet more and more dramatic secular change. Among the myriad strain, strands of change, there seem to be two major forces, two tectonic plates moving to shape the new landscape of everything, from the nature of work to the nature of the organization to the way in which we provide goods and services to one another. And those two forces, as we've said, are ESG and digitalization, both of which by different metrics have exploded since the onset of the pandemic. Inflows to ESG-designated funds have roughly doubled their assets under management to now around $2.5 trillion globally. And the global tech sector, as measured by the FTSE uh, index of global 300 tech companies, has more than doubled over the same period, even allowing for the recent profit-taking. Both ESG and digitalization have profoundly disruptive implications for the way we conduct business and our social affairs. And it seems that investors appear literally to have bought into that disruption. Perhaps buying into trends that were already underway before the pandemic but in the acceleration of those trends through the pandemic, those investors seemed also to be acknowledging that these two forces hold the keys to the new normal. I'm going to leave our guest speaker, Henri, to set the scene for us in a moment as to where he thinks the disruptive, disruptive effects of digitalization may take us. 
especially in the world of finance. I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes headlining some of the main conclusions from our work horizon scanning the new normal. Earlier this year, I published a research note uh, called ESG Beyond E, the Rise of Stakeholder Governance. It included data from a pilot survey conducted among our clients to discover more about their motivations for doing ESG. I'll be discussing it in more detail in the session immediately following this one and in several more sessions across the next two days, looking at different aspects with colleagues, colleagues who are lawyers. But for today's purposes, I wanted just to highlight what I think are its most disruptive characteristics. It starts from a simple observation that the world cannot afford another COVID and so must improve its organisational resilience. It goes on to argue that the agenda to do so looks remarkably like an ESG agenda across all three pillars and not just environmental. And so lands on the rise of stakeholder governance with greater priority given to the social and governance pillars. In so doing, it represents perhaps the greatest disruption to the shareholder governance model since I started my career in investment banking. With corporate altruism, as described by the World Economic Forum and others, having an uneasy relationship with the profit motive, at least in the short term. And there is at least one major intersection between the disruptive potential of stakeholder governance and that already underway in Henri's area of digitalization. And that intersection is around data. Our clients told us they need help in defining what data to collect to track progress through the disruption and, crucially, how to implement the insights to be taken from that data. And with that, I'm going to hand back to you, Charlotte. Thank you very much, Andy, uh, for those insights. And now over to Henri. Excellent. Thank you very much, Rob, and great. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, everybody at home, too, for being here. I know you have a choice of what to watch, so thanks for being with us today. As was mentioned, my name is Henry Arsleen. My, really, my passion in life is the future of money and the future of finance. I actually started my career as a lawyer, actually, so very good. Happy to be back in the uh, community of lawyers. Also a big fan of Simmons Simmons, and I've been a fan, friend of the firm for many, many years. Over the next couple of minutes, I want to share with you all three developments. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less that I think you as legal advisors need to know. And actually, that will be very helpful. That will have an impact not only today, but also in the coming years on your business. And I'm going to really focus on the short term, medium term, and long term, and really show you how the new normal is coming when we talk about the future of money and the future of finance. And make no mistake, the period you are going right now, catalyzed by covid is without any doubt the most exciting period in the history of money. Our kids and our grandchildren will look back at this period and see how the groundbreaking changes took place that really reshaped finance as we know it. So what are the big trends going on? And of course, I'll be talking about cryptocurrencies. The first big trend we are seeing right now when it comes to the future of money in crypto is that a couple of years ago, when I started in crypto in 2013, I was the only guy wearing, forget a suit, forget pants. I was really the only guy not wearing a t-shirt and a short at these crypto meetups. Today, the landscape has completely changed. The big game-changing developments we are seeing in the crypto space is taking place by a lot of the institutional investors, asset managers, hedge funds, buy-side, sell-side institutions. That is really reshaping a lot of the crypto ecosystem that we know today. 
Not a week goes by where we don't see actually a new, a new financial institution enter the space. And this has a big impact for many of you. To give you a case in point, this year we published a report with AMA that showed over 40% of hedge funds are either investing in crypto or are looking at investing in crypto this year. Especially with all the buzz going on right now, literally the last couple hours, Bitcoin surpassed 57,000 US dollars, which is, by the way, was literally 40,000 only two weeks ago, really shows you how this, this is coming back on top of the agenda. However, it's not only cryptocurrencies, institutional investors coming in, they're also going into different kinds of assets. NFTs, non-fungible tokens, for example. What is an NFT? As a, for the first time, we can mathematically prove that a certain asset is unique. And that not only has an impact, on a lot of the old school lawyers, if you're a conveyancing lawyer, for example, I would say your days are counted when it comes to NFTs, but really has a big impact on actually investors coming in and the uses we have. To put things in perspective, there is now, literally every week, over $200 billion of NFT that is being traded, mainly from retail investors. But this shows you how much this, people, this new asset class is coming into the space, and we're seeing a lot of institutional investors enter the space as well. Even simple stuff, boring stuff like stable coins. What is a stable coin? If Bitcoin is decentralized currency determined by offer and demand, there's only 21 million Bitcoin ever. A stable coin is digital currency that is backed one-to-one -one by fiat money. That means if I send Charlotte a Bitcoin, she'll be very happy, but we don't know what the price will be a week, a month, a year from now. If I send her a stable coin, it's worth a dollar today, in a week, and a month. And this is really increasing a lot. There are now over $125 billion of stable coin in circulation. There's a lot of benefits here. If, for example, if you're making cross-border payments, today the average fee, average fee of a cross-border payment is 7%, which frankly is a shame. Not only actually there's a lot of hidden fees, implicit fees, but also often it doesn't work. A couple of weeks ago, I was trying to make a, a bank transfer from Hong Kong to Canada. It doesn't work on a Sunday. I don't know. Maybe my bank goes to church. And all these are completely changing right now with the rise of stable coins. We're seeing a lot of corporates and not only retail and funds use it, but actually it's becoming more and more mainstream. And especially for lawyers out there, this is an area you need to keep an attention on because there'll be a lot of regulatory issues coming up, legal issues coming up, not only financial services, but broader commercial matters as well. So the first trend that you need to keep an eye on right now is that the crypto is here. It's here to stay. It's a new normal. And definitely it's the entry of institutional players. This is not something that you could disregard and, and actually was really happening a little uh, weird. People were talking about it. It's definitely here to say. Second trend that I think a midterm perspective that everybody here, especially legal advisors, need to be aware of is really when we talk about CBDC, central bank digital currency. What is a central bank digital currency? Let me take a step back. If today you're a central banker and you love Bitcoin, you're crazy. It's a bit like a taxi driver, a black cab in London, being excited to see Uber come in the market. However, central bankers were not idiots, probably not at the taxi industry. What they did, they actually said, is there a lot of the benefits that we can take from cryptocurrencies, use it ourselves, and actually have be able to better accomplish our functions? And this is why you saw today, 86% of central banks are, are involved in central bank digital currencies. The IMF came recently said that 110 member countries of the IMF are now also getting involved in CBDCs. You may say, ah, what is the point? What are some of the benefits? There's a lot of them. For example, today, if I'm using good old cash in many countries in Europe, think about countries like Greece and Italy, up to 20 to 30% of payments happen in cash. Why? Not that people love cash. 
as often for tax evasion. We all know those little restaurants on the Greek islands that only accept cash, for example. The beauty of a CBDC from a fiscal policy perspective really helps us to actually clamp down on tax evasion, but also topics like money laundering. Lawyers, and I'm sure many of you have made money over the years advising on AML policies and try to come up with some of these KYC policies that frankly do not work. Today, despite all the efforts that we spend, according to the World Bank, we're able to capture less than 1% to 2% of laundered transactions. If somebody was in charge of this, they'd be fired. According to the UN, there's between $800 billion to $2 trillion a year that is laundered through the system. The beauty with CBDCs is for the first time, we have a fighting chance against money laundering because the idea of giving somebody an envelope of cash basically becomes obsolete because everything is traceable. Yeah, corruption will still exist. People will get, get put their kids into certain schools, give them a bottle of wine, a nice watch, maybe in, in, the, in their internship in their favorite law firms, but it will actually corruption, but cash will be a thing of the past. And this has a big, big, big impact from that perspective, but also a big debate when it comes to privacy. This is very relevant because the ECB did a report recently that showed that Europeans are very opposed to the idea of a central bank digital currency. And especially Germans, for some reason, rather sacrifice convenience in exchange of, uh, rather not sacrifice convenience if it means actually it's going to infringe on their privacy. However, this is happening. Best example, China. China, the Olympics start in February 4, 2022. It's very likely China will launch actually its own uh, retail CBDC by then. To put things in perspective, China has been looking at this topic since 2014. They launched an institute on this topic in 2016 and have been experimenting since 2017. By way of comparison, the Bank of England launched its first consultation in March 2020. What this means already in China, there's over, over 5 billion US dollars of value of, of CBDC that has been transacted. There's been over 1.3 million use cases. And not only that, there's been over 20, 30 million wallets that have been used. And by the way, this is data since last July. So a lot of changes happening there. CBDCs are here. And we are the lucky generation who in our lifetime will see the appearance of a third form of central bank money. Today, there's only banknotes, which is a form of central bank money. And the lovely accounts that your lovely bank holds at the central bank. The money that you have at your bank is not central bank money. And we will all see the third form of central bank money, a digital banknote. Why this means for lawyers is that this is very relevant. Whether you're in the luxury industry, for example, and you're, you're, you're dealing with cosmetics or and luxury goods, and you're dealing with China, for example, you need to understand CBDC. If you're dealing with any other economy, this is something that will come into play. If you're a bank, there's not much upside for you, by the way, for having CBDCs, because then, but however, you need to actually get your pipes and everything ready to be able to deal with this new kind of currency in a way. So this is happening, and this also brings up a lot of legal issues. Think about all the legal work that has been created over the last years with SWIFT and, uh, and uh, correspondent banks and the likes. Same thing will happen with, with this kind of uh, CBDC that is coming into play. So very important from that perspective. Remember, 86% of central banks are currently looking at the topic. And number three, the third topic I'm going to leave with at the long-term perspective is really when it comes to DeFi, decentralized finance. What is DeFi? Today, every single financial transaction we do happens by a centralized intermediary. If even if I send you a, a, a PayPal transaction, a Venmo, whatever is your favorite app, we're going via centralized intermediary. What is the beauty now is we're seeing the rise of something called DeFi, decentralized finance, which is delivery of financial services without any intermediaries. This means many of you who work for centralized intermediaries do not exist in this picture. And by the way, for lawyers advising them, do not exist either in the picture either. And what this means, there's a couple of things here. And this is not a, a fancy term. 
There's a lot of activities that are being done right now on DeFi. For example, exchanges. Uh, today, the crypto exchanges are completely decentralized. Stable coins, crypto asset management, massive sector, and even, believe it or not, DeFi insurance, all happening without any intermediaries. To put things in perspective today, the volumes on a decentralized crypto exchange is only $150 billion. That is nothing compared to the trillions that are being traded on centralized exchanges. However, this is an area that is growing very, very quickly. Today, there's over $80 billion uh, of actually in total value locked in, uh, in, in when it comes to uh, decentralized finance. And actually, to put things in perspective, it was less than $1 billion in January 2020. Talk about an area that went from zero to one to over 80 today. So I'll stop it here. Again, these are the three big trends that we talk about. I think that every lawyer, every, every financial services professional needs to know when it comes to the new normal of finance. And I'll leave it here and I'll pass it back to you, Charlotte and Rob, from that perspective. Thank you. Henry, I'm glad that at least some intermediaries are still clinging on for the moment, and that's Charlotte and I in this event. Um, sounds like our days may be numbered. A quick um, opportunity for questions. If I could, as you look out um, at the various jurisdictions and regulators, who, who do you see is ahead and who is behind in the adoption of these opportunities or threats as, you as they could be characterized? Sure. Uh, I think often uh, a lot of lawyers and financial professionals will blame regulators, saying, ah, oh, there's no regulatory clarity, it's not clear, it's uncertain. Let me give you a piece of advice. If your general counsel tells you that actually there's, that there's no legal clarity, do me a favor, fire him on the spot. They actually, when it comes to crypto and pretty much every large financial center, there is regulatory clarity. We may not love it, it may not be perfect, but there is some regulatory clarity. Actually, according to Cambridge University today, only 5% of regulators do not have somebody working on crypto right now. I argue, I mean, I sit on the advisory board of many regulators and I deal with many regulators, central banks around the world. I can tell you that out of my personal experience, the average regulator is probably more knowledgeable than the average financial services professional. And frankly, in many cases, the average lawyer as well. Uh, what happened actually, what's not, there's been a lot of jurisdiction that took a lead. Initially, there were some smaller jurisdiction, you know, from like Malta, Gibraltars, uh, and that I really started going, focusing on it. But pretty much right now, every large financial center has relatively well-established uh, crypto regulations. Uh, the probably easiest country right now to set up a crypto business, for example, a crypto fund, remains ironic in the United States. Uh, you know, if you want to set up a fund, you can set it up. You take a 45-day notice to the, to the SEC and you're able to go. But obviously, we're seeing the emergence of other places from Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai, and likes uh, coming as well. Uh, the one piece of advice for everybody is that, you know, if you're looking at the space, spend some time. You know, this weekend, take half an hour, one hour, read about crypto. There's a lot of videos on YouTube, for example. When I started on crypto, we had to go read all these technical white papers. Today, there's a lot of YouTube channels, including my own, if you want, that is not only available in English, but also in French, Arabic, Chinese, and Spanish. And we can have a lot of the basics that will actually allow you to be uh, educated on this topic. Uh, what that will, that will be hopefully very helpful as you're looking at the regulatory implications on crypto. Thank you very much, Henri. Uh, I think we need to wind up. That was absolutely fascinating and very high energy. Um, let's see if we can keep that going through the day. I'm sure we can. And there's a number of uh, other topics, uh, uh, you know, or sessions around this topic as well. So there will be lots of discussion around AI and the digital journey, etc. But Henri, fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning.